Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 34, the book of Revelation, chapter 16. Revelation, chapter 16, is a highly emotional, drenched in drama, utterly terrifying in its prophecy of what lies ahead. It speaks primarily in terms of the seven so-called bowl judgments being poured out on the earth, aimed mostly at rebellious and unrepentant mankind. And in order for us to make better sense of Revelation chapter 16 and forward, we're going to take a couple of detours today. Now, the first verse of the previous chapter, so we're talking about Revelation chapter 15, began like this. Then I saw another sign in heaven, a great and wonderful one, seven angels filled with the, seven angels with the seven plagues that are the final ones because with them God's fury is finished. So plainly this group of seven judgments announced in chapter 15 and carried out in chapter 16 are the final ones. No more is going to happen in all of history. God's wrath will have been poured out to its fullest. Mankind will have been permanently divided, separated into two groups, believers and non-believers. Both groups have by now, at this point in Revelation, had their eternal fate sealed. No further change is possible. The former group to a pleasurable eternity with God, the latter group to eternal torments. So to this point, 21 named judgments have been pronounced. And by the end of chapter 16, all of them will have been fulfilled. Now the first seven were called the sealed judgments. The next group of seven was called the trumpet judgments. The final group of seven named the bowl judgments. Now, might there be a reason for there being exactly 21 judgments? Or does this correlate in any way with a biblical pattern? Now for those of you who have attended the Seed of Abraham Fellowship annual Sukkot fellowship and festival you heard me speak about this correlation so for the rest of you I'm going to briefly explain it the God ordained biblical feast of Sukkot Feast of Tabernacles is the seventh and final one of the yearly cycle of seven biblical feasts as given to Moses on Mount Sinai now we have learned the significance especially in Revelation, of the number seven. And that symbolically it means divine fullness, wholeness, perfection, but it also indicates finality. So Sukkot 
was the culmination of all the biblical feasts. The one that was perhaps the most anticipated by both the priests and by the lay people of Israel. And during that feast, which lasted for seven days, the most awesome part of the daily Sukkot ritual was called the water libation ceremony. Now on the surface, the meaning of this ritual is pretty straightforward. Recall that most of the biblical feasts are agricultural based and that Sukkot occurs at the final harvest of the season, the final ingathering of the, of, of the grain, before the fields now go fallow for a time. So the water libation ceremony is connected with a plea to Yehovah for the vital rains that will make or break the output of the next crop in, in the spring. And in general it operated like this. The high priest would take a special golden pitcher, he would go outside the city walls of Jerusalem, go down a hill, below the city of David, to the pool of Siloam, where he would fill it with about a quart of water. Next, the high priest would walk up a long series of steps and in holy procession he would enter the temple grounds through a special gate that appropriately enough was called the water gate and it was built into the thick limestone walls that protected and surrounded that, that holy city the priest would then linger for a while at the water gate until some Levite musicians blew three loud trumpet blasts. Then that was his signal. He would proceed up the stairs to the great altar of burnt offerings. And in front of the overflowing crowds, the high priest poured the water out very dramatically while saying in a loud voice, Therefore with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Which is a passage taken from Isaiah 12.3, by the way. Now the Levite musicians played music. Then the crowd would recite together one of the Hallel portions, specifically Psalm 118, verse 25. When they, so now the crowd responds back to the high priest, Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. This song was called the Hosanna, or more correctly pronounced in Hebrew, the Hoshana. Now the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, this was the grand finale. It was even given a special name, Hoshana Rabbah. The great Hoshana, if you would. Okay, on that last day, all the rituals were even more grand and the people more excited, more expectant. On all the other days of Sukkot, the high priest strode through the water gate with his golden vessel full of living water and his signal to proceed was that sound of three trumpet blasts. But on the final day of Sukkot, the Levites blew 
seven trumpet blasts. And they repeated it three times for a total of, you math experts, 21 trumpet blasts. After entering the water gate, the high priest then solemnly proceeded up the several steps to the altar. He waited until the crowd quieted down and, and, and gave him all of their attention. And then with the whole area now, thousands of people, silent. Every eye riveted on him. The high priest would lift up that golden pitcher and he'd pour out its contents for the last time. Not to be done again until next year's Feast of Tabernacles. Now note the pouring out, as it's described, of the water from a vessel. Just as we have the final seven judgments being poured out from vessels, from golden bowls, only instead of being filled with joy, these final vessels in Revelation 16 are filled with God's fury. We have here an unmistakable connection. Revelation reveals that there are three sets of judgments that will be poured out on the earth and each of the three sets consists of seven separate acts of divine judgment. Just as the high priest waited for three sets of seven trumpet blasts before he would proceed. Revelation names these judgments the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments and altogether there are 21. This is the identical pattern and format as the blowing of the trumpets at the water libation ceremony that brings the seventh and the final biblical feast, Sukkot, to a close. Which itself is a shadow of these 21 judgments, especially the final seven, that's going to usher in the close of the present age and the entry into the era of the millennial kingdom of Messiah. We should we cannot miss this connection. It's vital. Now, for those who might not know about the seven biblical feasts, I strongly recommend you study about them. Because at their core, they are prophetic of the redemptive work of Messiah and then the stages of development of God's kingdom. Okay, let's reread Revelation 16. I'm going to have a few more things to say of a general nature before we get back to studying the actual scriptural passages. Revelation chapter 16, we're going to read it all. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're on page 1547. It's Revelation chapter 16. Follow along, please. I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary say to the seven angels, Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of God's fury. So the first one went, and he poured his bowl onto the earth, and disgusting and painful sores appeared on all the people who had the mark of the beast, and who worshipped its image. The second one poured out his bowl into the sea. It became like the blood of a dead person. And everything living in the sea died. The third one poured out his bowl into the rivers, into the springs of water, and they turned to blood. And then I heard the angel of the waters say, 
Oh, HaKodesh, the Holy One who is and who was, you are just in these judgments of yours. They poured out the blood of your people and your prophets, so you have made them drink blood. They deserve it. Then I heard the altar say, Yes, Adonai, God of heaven's armies, your judgments are true and just. The fourth one poured out his bowl onto the sun, and it was permitted to burn people with fire. People were burned by the intensity, yet they cursed the name of God, who had the authority over these plagues, instead of turning from their sins to give him glory. The fifth one poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom grew dark. People gnawed on their tongues from the pain, yet they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. They did not turn from their sinful deeds. The sixth one poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three unclean spirits that looked like frogs. And they came from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. They are miracle-working demonic spirits which go out to the kings of the whole inhabited world to assemble them for the war of the great day of Adonai Ot. Look, I'm coming like a thief. How blessed are those who stay alert and keep their clothes clean so that they won't be walking naked and be publicly put to shame. And they gathered the kings to the place which in Hebrew is called Harmageddon, Armageddon. And the seventh one poured out his bowl on the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and voices and peals of thunder. There was a massive earthquake such as has never occurred since mankind's been on earth. So violent was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babel the Great and made her drink the wine from the cup, cup of his raging fury. Every island fled, no mountains were to be found, and huge 70-pound hailstones fell on people from the sky. But the people cursed God for the plague of hail, that it was such a terrible plague. It's important that we are aware of the use of angels in carrying out God's bold judgments. The scriptures don't tell us very much about angels. Mostly we merely find them doing assignments that God's given to them, but nowhere do we find much about their characteristics or a societal hierarchy or capabilities and limitations or, or even their substance, which we can only describe as spirit. Angels are presented in kind of a matter-of-fact way, with little fanfare, as though their existence and their spheres of influence are common knowledge, but with nearly no detail. So it's not surprising that the Hebrew sages and later on rabbis developed a lot of traditions about angels. And much of it had already been developed by John's time were his visions and how he describes and understands those visions about angels and, and the structure of nature taken within the context of the branch of Judaism that he was familiar with, almost certainly. 
Because his life experiences, his culture, his language form the basis of how he interpreted not only the world around him, but also the spiritual world. Therefore, the visions he received, he interpreted within that same backdrop. Even his belief in Yeshua as Messiah would have changed little about his understanding in these areas because Christ really didn't speak to it. Now John's circumstance is so very similar for us today, even though we often don't don't think about it, we don't realize it. Without a teacher to help understand how the Israelites of ancient Bible times understood heaven, earth, sky, the universe and spiritual beings and so on, then we moderns right away begin to draw mental pictures based not on what the ancient biblical authors thought and meant, but rather our mental pictures are based upon our particular cultural norms and beliefs, our presumptions about how the earth and the cosmos works and so on. And therefore our interpretation and understanding of God's word is is telling us, uh, what God's word is telling us is based on our modern worldviews. Complete with all the modern technology that's all around us. So what we need to do to better understand what the Lord is telling us is to dig deep. To learn about ancient Bible times and how the people of those days saw things. And what we know from John's first century era is that the Jews at that time generally believed that there were ministering angels if not for every Jewish individual although some Jews believed that every Jew had his or her own guardian angel then certainly there were angels assigned to nearly every aspect of life and especially for the various elements of nature It was not new information to John that God had angels in charge of the air, in charge of the oceans, in charge of the fresh water sources, in charge of the rivers, in charge of the land, and so on and so forth. So John wasn't startled. He wasn't confused over God using these angels in charge of these various attributes of nature to carry out these several judgments that God had ordained. Likely it would have confused him had God not done it that way. But we also can't get around the reality that some of what John believed in in this regard had come from pagan influence. About 500 years before John, Empedocles, who was a Greek philosopher, he created the theory of the four basic elements of nature. And according to his theory, the physical, the material world is made up of four elements, earth, water, air, and fire. 
And these elements cannot be deconstructed any further from what they are. And the various materials in the world are different from each other in the relative amounts of these four elements that comprise them. A little of this, a little of that. For that element, a whole lot of that. A little tiny bit of this. You get the idea? Now the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who lived a couple hundred years after Empedocles, he embraced this theory of the four elements. And he added a fifth one that he called ether. The sacred element from which he believed the heavens were formed. Now this was basically cutting edge scientific theory for that era. However, reality is that nature is much more complex than this. And this early Greek scientific theory of the four elements has proved to be incorrect on nearly every level. So with that information in hand, then when we look at the overall format of Revelation chapter 16, it is hard not to notice that God's judgments are set upon those same four elements of nature. Earth, water, fire, and air. The first bowl judgment involved earth, the second, third, and sixth, water, the fourth, the sun, fire, and the seventh one, air. The only one that didn't specifically involve earth, water, fire, or air is the fifth one that was aimed at Satan's kingdom. Now I'm hardly the first one to perceive this. And I don't like ignoring those things in the Bible that usually bother Christian pastors and commentators so much they prefer to just kind of gloss over them and let's move on. Because there's always a good reason for the way it's presented to us. And while those reasons that God revealed certain information to us may not always, may not always be of a highly spiritual nature, they can be cultural. And by leaving them as is, it helps us to understand the mindset of this ancient writer of any particular Bible book. Recall a couple of lessons ago that we discussed the Jewish mindset of John's era about how the earth and the sky and the heavens were structured. That is, that the earth was flat with corners and there was a dome above the earth. That's where the birds flew and where the sun and the moon and the stars hung. And then above that dome there was the highest heaven where God lived. This of course is not scientifically accurate as we now know, but it is what John and most people of his time imagined from their very limited vantage point. So when we read in the Bible for instance, if your Bible's a good, literal, solid translation, it's going to, you're going to hear the words mid-heaven. You're going to hear about highest heaven. When you hear about those things, you're going to hear about that, plus you're going to hear a term, the firmament. Okay? And you're going to hear about angels flying around and so forth. And where they're flying around is in mid-heaven or highest heaven, whatever. Okay? 
This is the mental image that folks in Bible times held. So in John's vision, God reveals his plans to John in ways he and those of his time can best grasp and identify with. Whereas it was the common belief in his day that all of nature consisted of earth, water, fire, and air, so then we see God declaring his judgments in those same terms, since these are the final judgments and everything is being judged. Now I'm not going to repeat what we learned last week. But I will briefly remind you that in chapter 16, regarding the first bull judgment, God's target is the earth, meaning land. But perhaps better, it's land creatures that's the point. And the pertinent land creatures are human beings. Specifically, it's a judgment upon humans that have accepted the mark of the beast. That to God, that mark signifies their loyalty to Satan. And this judgment is one of disfiguring, painful sores that outwardly identifies that person as an enemy of God. Further, the skin sores that's symbolic of the divinely wrought spiritual disease called Sarat. It's an ugly skin disease. And it's intended to expose a person's inner spiritual condition before God by having that person wear it on their skin. A person with Sarat is highly unclean, full of shame. Might this include some believers who give in in hopes of survival? Relying on God's mercy to understand why they did what they did by taking on that mark. Absolutely. Because there is a warning back in chapter 14 that even in the midst of all the horror that's going to be happening at the hand of the Antichrist, perseverance on the part of God's people is is needed. And that we should not worry because our death will be a welcomed and blessed event on account of our struggles finally being over. So if a believer should think he or she can escape God's wrath by taking on the mark of the beast in order to escape the beast's wrath, then think again. A person cannot have allegiance to both God and Satan. If a believer is essentially given the choice Folks, this is what it comes down to. If a believer, if you are essentially given a choice of taking the mark of the beast or death, the Lord says, take death. That's your only option. That's tough, isn't it? Now the second bowl judgment was poured out upon the salt waters of our planet. It turned the oceans into a goo that was like like the coagulated blood of a dead person. This has both literal and symbolic meaning. Such a circumstance will of course make extinct 
every living organism in the oceans and it will cut the world's food supply to such a low level that billions will starve to death and the world's economy will sink. But it is also symbolic of God declaring the waters, the oceans of the earth, ritually unclean. Because there's nothing of a higher degree of uncleanness than a dead body. And blood associated with the death of the guilty is also considered highly unclean. The third bold judgment was announced in verse 4. It also is a divine judgment on the element of water, but this time it's on the fresh water. The water we drink. These waters too were turned to blood. Notice how this judgment resembles the plague of blood upon the water upon the waters in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Also notice this. Even though components of the bold judgments are very similar to several of the Egyptian plagues, the Egyptian plagues were highly localized. The rest of the world went along its merry way as Egypt wilted under the, God, uh, under the hand of God. The bold judgments, however, are universal. They are planet-wide. There is nowhere to hide. There is nowhere to escape from their effects. Forget your years full of food supply. All this stuff. The pit you dug for yourself down in the ground to escape it all. Forget it. The rich and the poor, the great, the small, the political leaders, the average citizens of the world. Everybody's going to suffer together. Verse 5, still concerning the third bowl judgment, begins with the words, Then I heard the angel of the waters say, See, here's a fine example of what we discussed earlier. It is that the Jewish belief was there were ministering angels over every aspect of nature. This seems to indicate that but one angel was assigned the task of overseeing the earth's waters. Is it true that an angel is in charge of the earth's water or is this merely something of a myth that John and other Jews believed? I can't say for certain, but since there's nothing in the Bible that would dispute such a claim, I can find no reason to question it. Even though most modern Bible commentators accept this only as a figure of speech and not a reality. However, their reasoning, and hear me on this, their reasoning is not at all based on scriptural evidence. Rather, it is purely that they simply don't believe in angels, demons, miracles, or the spiritual world. So they just automatically assert this passage just reflects a uh, primitive superstition. Continuing verse 5. The angel of the waters makes a declaration that speaks of revenge and, and retribution. This is the principle of lex talionis at work. Proportional justice. It is better known as an eye for an eye. That is, a person is to be subject to punishment or judgment measure for measure to his crime or his sin. 
And here we're told that because they, the they means wicked people, poured out the blood of God's people and of His prophets, so then they will have to drink blood to survive, meaning the blood like waters. Now Christians, especially evangelical Christians, take notice. Most of your denominations have declared that this principle of proportional justice has been done away with in Christ, along with all other aspects of the law. It was this mean, wrathful God of the Old Testament who demanded this. But the new, nice, merciful, loving God of the New Testament, Jesus has replaced the Father. And His ways are filled with things like turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. <laughs> well, here we find in Revelation, which is, by the way, the newest of the New Testament writings, that in the near future of modern times, this fearful attribute and principle of God's justice system remains unchanged. Now the first part of the Angel of the Waters proclamation is to say that the Holy One, meaning God, is the, was, is the one who was and who is. Sounds like a piece of that's missing, doesn't it? Who was and who is. Now pay attention to the fact that yet again in Revelation where we might expect the phrase about God's nature to be who was, who is, and who is to come, the to come part is missing. This is not a copyist error. Rather, it's explaining that the God that is to come has come. And since this reference is invariably to God the Father, then we need to realize that from John's perspective, as concerns the end of days, that the Father has indeed come in relation to the end times timeline. This would not have been news to John because the prophet Zechariah declared it in Zechariah chapter 14. Now I'm going, to, I'm going to read this very short section to you from the complete Jewish Bible, but I'm also going to add back in a word that actually appears in the original Hebrew texts that makes all the difference in his interpretation. In the complete Jewish Bible, where we see the word Adonai, that is there strictly, by the way, to uphold Jewish rabbinical tradition, the word that is there, actually there, in the Holy Scriptures, is God's name. Yehovah. And this is evidenced, by the way, by the Dead Sea Scrolls. It also says Yehovah was there in John's day. I'm going to read it to you now, adding, that, adding his name back in. Zechariah 14, 1-4 Look, a day is coming for Yehovah when your plunder, Jerusalem, will be divided right there within you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem for war. The city will be taken, the horses will be rifled, the women will be raped, and half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then Yehovah will go out and fight against those nations. 
fighting as on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lies to the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west to make a huge valley. And half of the mountain will move towards the north and half of it towards the south. Yehovah, Yudhe is used in the Old Testament either to indicate the Father or the totality of God. So indeed the concept in Revelation that God was and is but is no longer coming because he's already come relative to the end times timeline is validated by the prophet Zechariah just as we've read about the moment he arrives. And this passage is going to play a role a little later in the seventh bowl judgment as well. And we're going to discuss that when we get there. Now one of the more important parts to the declaration of the angel of the waters concerning Jehovah is that he is just in these judgments that he's handing down. God is just in them. Now see, we have to understand that the term just doesn't mean fair or right in some ethereal or fuzzy sense of morality or righteousness. Not at all. It means it in a judicial legal sense. This is another matter that can trip up Christians because even more so in modern times, justice, mercy, love... Many other attributes and principles of God are seen through contemporary morals and standards. And especially since the legal part of the Bible, the Torah, has long been dismissed as obsolete and irrelevant for the church, then what is just in God's eyes has become a moving target based on ever-evolving Christian sentiments. But when we understand that for John and for all previous biblical periods, justice can only be defined within the law of Moses, then we understand what what standard of justice is going to be upheld. It will be just according to the law of Moses. The same standard for Moses remains relevant to us to this day and on into the end times even though most of Christianity denies it. Therefore, since measure for measure is a fundamental characteristic of God's justice system in the Torah, then this is given as the reason in verse 6 that God's judgment on mankind are just. In fact, if I might add, if God was to not act out in judgment on the wicked, it would not be just. And he would just simply be violating his own covenant. Now another voice chimes in to express the righteousness of God's judgment, and it comes from the altar, we're told. Now this verse is variously translated in in different Bible versions such that, as in the complete Jewish Bible, it's the altar itself that seems to be speaking. But in other translations, 
It is the voice from another from the altar that's speaking. In checking the Greek, indeed the word alos is there and it means another. Now I confess, it could well be that different Greek manuscripts have it written differently. And that accounts for the disagreement. Be that as it may, unless the term altar is being used figuratively, because obviously inanimate altars can't speak, then likely indeed it is another from the altar. That is the proper sense of it. That harkens back then to Revelation chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, we read this. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been put to death for proclaiming the word of God, that is, for bearing witness. And they cried out in a loud voice, Sovereign, Ruler, HaKodesh, the True One, how long is it going to be before you judge the people living on earth and avenge our blood? Well, each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants should be reached of their brothers who would be killed just as they had been. That is, the souls of martyrs under the heavenly altar who join with the angel of the waters and agreeing with God that his judgments are just, that kind of a scenario is what makes the most sense because they were back in Revelation chapter 6, asking for justice for their murder. However, God told him, now you're going to have to wait a little while. You have to wait. Be patient until the full number of your fellow servants, believers, are reached. And indeed, what do we read about in Revelation chapter 14? We read that one like a son of man came on a cloud with a what in his hand? A sickle. What did he do? He harvested. He reaped the harvest. And since it's my contention that this was a harvest of believers, then it means that the full number of their fellow servants has been reached. So, the time for those martyred souls who have been waiting for justice is over. And justice is finally happening for them. Hear the martyred souls call God the God of heaven's armies, which is an Old Testament term used to indicate Jehovah, God the Father. So this is not addressed to the Lamb, to Christ. It's addressed to the Father. Well, the fourth bull's emptied. And it attacks the Son. Fire. Fire. The third of the elements of nature, of Greek and Jewish belief in the New Testament era and somewhat earlier. So now God has attacked, at this point, three of the four elements of nature. And this, of course, says to anyone of John's day that every aspect of everything that forms nature, including humans, is under God's wrathful judgment, except for one that's still remaining. The air. The air. So now might be a good time to detour for just a moment to explain that this belief 
and the four elements of nature, earth, water, fire, and air, remained alive and well, rather universally, until the era of the Enlightenment in the 18th century. It was a foundational belief of the church, even beyond that time. Listen to the words of Achaemenius, who was a church father of the 10th century, in his comments on Revelation chapter 16. And now the apocalypse explains to us that an angel is over the waters. For although the world is constituted out of the four elements of air, fire, earth, and water, although some think that the heavenly things are established from some fifth element that they say is ethereal and moves in a circle, that's all I'll say about it, but you see... Here you have a church father in the 10th century just saying, well, since we all know this is the fact, no use discussing it, we all know it. So although to us of the 21st century, the thought of air and fire and earth and water is the four elements of nature, we know it's a myth. In fact, the Gentile church believed it right up until the 1800s right along with a, a few sects of Jews, including those adherents, adherents, by the way, of Kabbalah, who still believe it. Now verse 8 says, the sun was permitted to burn people with fire. And to emphasize that this is meant literally, even though it could as well include symbolic meaning, verse 9 says, the people will be burned by the intense heat of the sun. In the fourth trumpet judgment, the sun was darkened. But now with this bold judgment, it's suddenly made hotter than ever. The sun in the Bible is seen as a blessing to mankind because it's essential to life. But now God takes square aim at this essential star that we cannot do without and which must function in a precise way or it turns the earth either into a moon-like deep freeze or a mercury-like oven. Now we probably ought to be astounded to read that even when the sun begins acting as an adversary to mankind instead of as our friend, the reaction of humanity it's to curse the name of God. In other words, as with Pharaoh in Egypt, the hearts of the world's remaining population will become so hardened towards the Lord that even though they thoroughly understand now, it's He that's causing these calamities. And it is He who can control even the sun with but a thought that rather than submit to his holy authority and plead for mercy, their only thought is to curse him even more. This is virtually the same stance towards God that Satan has since time immemorial. Satan knows who God is, what he's capable of, and yet rather than submit to God, Satan's going to fight until his total destruction. I mean, don't we see this of people in our society today? Aren't our prisons full of unrepentant criminals for whom evil is the norm? 
They like it. They live for it. Satan has sowed his evil seed well and deep among the roots of mankind. But for that segment of unrepentant humanity, the end is near. Perhaps a whole lot sooner than we think. And we will continue with the bold judgments next time.